Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 230, All or Nothing. Last time, as the Madagascar situation seemed to be cooling down, but not fast enough for Churchill's war cabinet, as they needed all possible help in Burma and India, Lieutenant General William Platt, General Officer Commanding East Africa Command, was told that the island was now within his jurisdiction. So he sent Governor General Annette a verbal warning. Let's work this out, or I'll work it out on my own, and you won't like that very much. Still, the Vichy officer and official did not reply to the request. Platt had his answer. And seeing no forward movement on this issue, Field Marshal and South African leader Jan Smuts called for a conference that was held on June 20th. Holding it in Pretoria, Smuts invited Generals Platt, Sturgis, and Brigadier Lush, who attended. The field marshal kept it simple and got right to the point. Annette was not going to give the British or the Allies what they wanted, so it had to be taken. Besides, though Diego Suarez was an incredible port and harbor, it wasn't the only one the island had to offer. That could not stand. So Smuts ended with, let's go get them, to which the generals and the brigadier had to agree, as they had no better idea. But diplomacy, unlike war, has nuances. It has layers. In war, you shoot or you do not. In diplomacy, very little is as it appears. Annette did not give an official response to General Platt, but he did respond. Annette had sent Monsieur Milot, president of the Planters Association, who told the men in uniform, Look, gentlemen, most of the French in the capital, Tenenarive, wants to surrender, but Annette simply cannot give up without a fight. If he did that, he could never go home again. No, what is needed is for you guys to come at us. We resist a little, and then we surrender. More earnestly, he added, but even then, no free French on this island or the fighting will turn quickly earnest. This was welcome news to the British, if it was true. But what choice did they have? The 29th Brigade needed to be sent to Burma post-haste, so the plan was thus. First, the port cities of Maunga on the west coast and Tamatave on the east coast would be taken. After that, if Governor General Annette still refused to accept temporary British mastery over the island, then British-led forces would march on the island's capital, Tananarive. That was step one. Now that there was a plan, mostly put together by Jan Smuts, this proposal was sent to London, with the warning that when it came to taking the capital, Tananarive, London would have to approve that. But all this needed to happen quickly, for two reasons that could not be altered. First, the rainy season was coming, which would ground all Allied planes, and two, the overall health of the 29th Brigade, like the two other brigades already sent away, was getting weaker by the day, as man after man fell down with whatever disease got him. Admiral Somerville thought the plan was sound, at least its objectives, and he was able to speak the language that not only the Admiralty could understand, but also the War Cabinet. He added, if we control the entire island, then our enemies, none of them, could have a base of operations in the western Indian Ocean, 
If that was the case, then he, Somerville, would need fewer ships here, and they could be sent east to help take on the Japanese directly, versus waiting for them to show up here. And more British warships could help with the worsening situations in Burma and Malaysia, which had the magic effect. But it was the chiefs of staff that were hesitant to give this operation a green light. First, the assault ships had already been sent to India with the 17th and 13th Brigades. They, the ships, would have to come back so the 29th Brigade could be loaded up onto them to make for the two port city targets. Again, the chiefs of staff, not happy about this, dragged their feet. But by mid-July, things were calmer in India, if only because the Japanese forces there were ordered to halt by Tokyo as the rainy season there was already approaching. Thus, the ships became free, and Churchill had never met a battle yet he did not like. So, he happily approved the return of the ships, as it would help lock down Madagascar, making tiptoeing around Vichy and de Gaulle less necessary. So, when the chief of the Imperial General Staff, Alan Brooke, Churchill's most senior military advisor, agreed to the plan— the Prime Minister made it official. General Platt and the others had, until the rainy season came to the island, to tidy it up, as it were, for the Allied cause. And yet, offering up a threat is one thing. Carrying it out, if your bluff is called, is quite another. Generals Platt and Sturgis now knew getting to the capital, Tenanariv, would not be that easy if and they suspected this would be the case, Annette did not give in to their demands. Tananariv is at a point just to the northeast of the center of the island, thus it's not on any coast. The road that went down from Diego Suarez on the east coast only went for 80 miles or so before it stopped. There, mountains arose, and those had not yet been blasted through. Down the west coast, the road was longer and could at least get them parallel with the capital, which was more inland. But, and this is a big but, there were some 300 bridges that would have to be crossed. It would be easy enough for Vichy to destroy enough of them to make coming this way a waste of time. Which left two options. First, if they landed at the port of Mahunga on the west coast, but still a decent distance from the capital, At least there was a road there that connected the port city to the capital. The only bad news, besides the 300 kilometers distance, was that the road was unmetalled. Thus, it could have been stronger. Second, they could land on the east coast at Tamatave, again another target that had to be taken anyway, and there there was a rail line that connected the port city with the capital. As it seemed that these were the only two viable options, that meant The 29th Brigade, though in an ever-weakening state, had to stay on the island until this was over. And if it would take force to win over the rest of the island, Platt and Sturgis were given additional proof that Annette was not in earnest in his dealings. Late in July, when taking the rest of the island had been decided, Annette sent a message to Diego Suarez. It said, I am sending a VIP, the manager of the Bank of Madagascar, a Monsieur Dupont. But Sturgis wasn't buying any of this. At the very least, he was not going to let this Vichy spy into their midst to see them gearing up for war. 
No, this Mr. Dupont was met away from the bay and by a foreign officer representative, Mr. Gaffety Smith. The upshot of the meeting was that the Frenchman did not get to see anything of import, while Grafty Smith got millions of francs for the Diego Suarez region. And why did Mr. Dupont agree to hand over such vast sums? Well, with Mr. Grafty Smith saying, well, we could just bring in sterling and make that the official currency of this area. That's all it took for Vichy pride. And then the wider war had the temerity to stick its nose into Operation Ironclad's business. While the men trained for the upcoming attacks, landing craft and assault ships had to be gathered, and the only one who had these that could possibly spare them was General Wavell, C&C India. Oh, to be sure, there were plenty around, but as the Americans were about to land in North Africa, everybody was thinking at this point it would be October 15th, the British attack on the port cities of Madagascar would be an in-house operation. The only boats that they would have had to be supplied by Wavell. Thus, it was expected that this jump-off would be in late August, perhaps maybe early September, but would definitely go into September before it was all done. As the men trained, information vital to their success was gathered. Supposedly, Mahunga on the west coast had 1,000 men guarding it, along with one 75mm gun. Tamatave on the East Coast was expected to have 1,500 men and six 75mm guns. As for the capital, Tananarive, it had four of each 75mm guns and 65mm guns, plus 2,300 troops, all kinds. They were to shield Annette and the capital. Of course, there were other Vichy units in other towns, and the British wanted to make sure that they could move fast enough before any of those people could help the capital. And making this seem more possible, though some of the outlying towns had 8mm Hotchkiss machine guns and 81 Brandt mortars, they were supposedly short on ammunition. The best that Intel could say right now was that each Vichy troop had about 50 cartridges for his gun. So the idea seemed to be, when we engage, let Vichy shoot back to a degree as they will soon run out of ammunition. And when has military intelligence ever been wrong? The plan needed to start quickly, but it was also imperative that it be over in a short time, because lacking ammo or not, no one wanted to fight to take a city and then turn around and have to defend it. No, it would be better to capture the governor general and force him to order all his men to stand down. What need not be discussed was whether to include de Gaulle and his troops. That was a non-starter for Vichy and for London. The plan to take the rest of the island, well, the parts that mattered to the Allies, was actually three plans, as Sturgis had only so many men. It was to be called Stream, Line, Jane, and each name was for a specific operation. Stream would have the 29th Brigade land at Mahunga on the west coast, about halfway between Diego Suarez Bay and the capital, Tananarive. The port city was to be subdued as quickly as possible. Then Operation Line 
was to get underway, namely that the 22nd East African Brigade would get into a position to the west of the capital, and when they were told to move, they would march directly at the capital. But this was only to be a feint, or rather, the anvil, because the 29th Brigade would, by this time, have loaded back onto the transports and sailed around the island. They would land on the coast, take Tamatave, and then use the rail line to come at the capital from the east, and then, in concert with the East Africans, trap the capital and all therein, namely Governor General Annette. But, I ask you, what is a British plan of attack without throwing in some diversions? And Streamline Jane would certainly have these. Trying to kill two birds with one stone, one diversionary attack would be carried out by a South African brigade. They were to start at Sakarami, about 10 kilometers south by southwest of the Erichart airfield, itself south of Diego Suarez Bay. They would drive further south, make lots of noise on purpose, and get noticed. The hope was that Annette would get reports of this and send men from the capital to stop this advance. But if the South Africans could kill or capture whoever was sent their way, then Annette would be participating in his own destruction. The second flank of the diversion was to land some commandos on the east coast, just a bit south of the capital. The commandos, getting a break for once, were simply to cause mayhem and chaos. Their officers felt that they were overqualified for this task, but hoped for the best, as touching the safety of the enemy troops and the civilians in the area. Operation Stream got started on September 10th. There had been delays, one of them being that the South African Air Force was trying to gather up enough planes, as their numbers kept being reduced by war, accidents, and normal wear and tear. Either way, when the men of the 29th Brigade rushed in at Mahunga, they were covered by five Marylands and seven Beauforts. Not exactly impressive, but that was double the number that Vichy had in its entirety. And on that day that stream was launched, de Gaulle was told of what was happening and that it was too late for the free French to participate. I will leave it to the listener to guess the French general's reaction. General Platt would be in overall command, but Major General Bob Sturgis was made military commander, with Captain Garons Williams of the Royal Navy and Brigadier Francis Festing appointed as joint assault commanders for the two coastal cities. And again, because we are talking about the British, the Special Operations Executive was involved to send intelligence from the Vichy capital, but also to cut communications there once the fighting got started. As for the intelligence that was coming from the capital to the British, that was being given to them by Bertha Mayer, Percy's wife. He was in jail, and she was being watched, but she would not let down the cause of securing the island for the Allies. Brigadier Francis Festing's 29th Independent Brigade Group came in hard at Mahunga while being supported by Rear Admiral W.G. Tennant's Force A. This was a part of Admiral Sir James Somerville's Eastern Fleet, but London needed this here over now. So coming at the target city, besides the men, besides the plane, besides the artillery, 
were the light cruisers Birmingham, Gambia, and the free Dutch Jakob von Himsrek, with the destroyers Napier, Nepal, Zazam, and the Australian Norma, and two additional free Dutch ships. Besides having dominance in terms of men, guns, ships, and planes, the British-led forces also had excellent intelligence, as the South African pilots had worked overtime, flying sorties and taking tons of pictures. Sadly, one of their Maryland light bomber pilots was hit by AA fire and his plane went down on the island's east coast, but he and his crew survived. To be sure, the Vichy gunner called this in, and soon, there were 40 native troops, led by a European officer, on their trail, wanting to capture them and bring them back to the governor general, so he would have more leverage. On the British side, a small crew of commandos and royal engineers were put together, and they headed into the jungle, but for whatever reason, they could not locate the downed aircrew. The pilot, his last name was Jones, was worldly enough, so he walked straight up to the first locals he saw, and he asked them if Vichy troops were around. There was silence on the other end, that is, until Jones offered up some cigarettes. That did the trick, and soon Jones and company were being told of the number and from which direction their pursuers were coming from. And keeping the streak of boldness going... Though vastly outnumbered, Jones decided to ambush his would-be captors. Taking the Vickers machine gun from his light bomber, he set it up and he had his crew man it. Then Jones simply stood in the middle of the path his Malagasy pursuers were using. The French officer, spotting Jones, confidently walked up to him. And here's how this very short exchange went. French officer you are under arrest. Jones, I am sorry. There's a misunderstanding. You are my prisoner. I have you covered with superior fire. French officer, you make the bluff. Jones, give him a burst. The machine gun went off briefly into the jungle. French officer, I surrender unconditionally. It was over. The men were purposefully marooned on a small island just off the coast, but they were picked up later by a minesweeper. Meanwhile, some South African troops had landed on a small island north of Mahunga that also had artillery on it. The Vichy troops there were quickly apprehended. This was the first assault landing by South Africans. As some of the men of the 29th Brigade had been recuperating in Mombasa, Kenya, they, along with the South African Armored Car Commando Unit, left that city on September 5th, five days before Operation Stream was to get underway. They could not imagine such a collected force as they saw before them when the ships from Kenya and the ships from Diego Suarez came together. There were dozens of them. But what gave them the most relief was seeing the carrier Illustrious with her 39 aircraft on board. In truth, the Illustrious was the only carrier remaining in the Eastern Fleet, but London dubbed this operation important enough to bring her along. As this armada approached Mahunga, the 29th Brigade was broken into two parts. First, the Welsh Fusiliers and East Lanks were put together, and they would be landed at Red Beach, a place about 10 miles above the port town. Their job was to head south and east 
to approach Mahunga from the land side or the southeastern side. Giving them enough time to get into place, when the sun rose, the other half of the 29th, that being the South Links and Number 5 Commando, were to land much closer to Mahunga and attack it directly. As there would be no pre-attack bombardment, it was hoped that speed and surprise would carry the day. There were no clouds, but it was pitch dark. So at 1 a.m. on September 10th, the first men were put ashore and they were offloaded only about 100 yards from their target. Not bad as such things go. Hopefully, their luck would hold. The second group of the first half of the brigade were unloaded at 2.45 a.m. The swells were making it hard, but practice had paid off. Soon, this group was running south in pursuit of the first group of men. As there were three roads that led south into Mahunga, the men split up to cover all three. And sure enough, one of those groups ran into an observation post. But again, stealth paid off. The French officer and his 16 men were soon made prisoners. On another of the three roads, Captain Williams' D Company subdued a defensive position just north of town. But it was a near-miss operation. Again, the men could not see each other enough to coordinate their attack. Fortunately, the defenders, they were even less vigilant. After this fighting was over, the unit leader had the men hold on to the extended rifle of the man in front of them to stay in contact. On the most inland road, the east lanks were moving apace, that is, until they were near the airfield, north of Mahunga. The east lanks fought and got past the first line of defense, but now that they were closer to town, the defensive positions were too well dug in and mutually supportive. The would-be attackers took a knee, but at least they were in position for when the larger attack commenced. As for the second group that was landed to the north, they had the jobs of swinging around the entire town to cut off the roads that led out to the southeast, as one of those roads made for the capital, and the other road made for another nearby city that also held Vichy forces. When these two roads were reached, the men turned around and began to walk on them towards the city, thus doing their part to attack Mahunga from different locations. Of course, there had been enough shooting that the chief of the battalion, Martin, the city's military commander, was alerted. And as all the reports so far came in, said that the threat was coming from the north, Martins gathered as many men as he could, and he sent them in that direction. Mahunga, the city, his responsibility, was now practically defenseless, which had been the Allied plan all along. Of course, what Sturgis nor London could know was that Governor General Annette had been ordered to win or revert to a scorched-earth policy and guerrilla tactics. If the French could not control the island, then no one could, and there would be little of use left on Madagascar. <laughs> 